The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner, or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs, and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. This is a Reconstructionist radio production. The following audio blogs can be found in written form at foundationsofreconstruction.com. This article, titled Parental Rights, The Foundation of Familiar Government, was written by Caitlin Smith, December 13, 2016. We hear a lot about the rights of different groups. We, as Americans, fight for, or against, different rights. Some fight for rights guaranteed by our Constitution. The right to own firearms, the right to privacy, the right to freedom in religion. Others fight for the rights that they themselves want. The right to homosexual marriage the right for transgender people to use the facilities of their choice, the right to legalize marijuana. Among these many, there is one right that is being taken away rather quietly and without much fanfare, the right of parents. Yes, the right of parents. The right for a parent to discipline their child, teach their child, make medical decisions for their child, or even require their child to obey them. The right to exercise authority over their child, and our culture is striving to take away this right, to call it evil and wicked, they say they are attempting to save the children from the parents' tyrannous abuse. Let me clarify. I do believe that there are clear-cut cases of child abuse when it is in the best interest of the child to be removed from their parents. I do believe there are cases of beatings, abusive relationships, and other terrible horrors. But the antidote to this problem is not more governmental intrusion. Instead, the church must stand up and get involved. We need the church and individual families to be brave and strong enough to open their hearts and care for the children who are hurt, confused, and broken. Personally, I feel it undermining to parental authority for another person in authority over a child, i.e. grandparents, aunts, uncles, etc., and to purposely go against the parents' desires. If the parents say no candy, it shouldn't be snuck to them. If the parents expect good behavior, they shouldn't laugh at disobedience even if it is cute. But what is happening in our culture is more than just an undermining of parental authority. It is a full-fledged attempt to rid the parent of the right to parent their child. And it's being done by stealth, guilt and touting the dangers of self-consumed, abusive parents. It's being done by working on the children's minds through education, not by fighting the parents themselves. The government counselors, child protective services, and public school teachers, all of it deals directly with the child. Recently, a popular idea has come to inhabit the minds of Americans. This is the idea that your child has the right to make his or her own choices. Children are being taught this and indoctrinated against the government of parents. We saw this in communist Romania, as children were expected to report their parents to the teachers for every little thing. Daddy has a gun, and Mommy prays and brings me to church. We are seeing the same mindset in America. There is a documentary that can be found on chi a child being removed from his home because the parents attended church twice a week. This is not the communist country, and yet we see parents who would exercise any sort of ownership or authority over their children being punished. There was a bill recently that the government was attempting to put into law that welcomed parents to share the responsibility of caring for their children. The problem with this? 
parents don't share the responsibility of parenting with the government. They alone are responsible. This is not a new idea, that the state should parent the children. It has been around for as long as the humanistic, socialistic, and communistic way of thinking has. The humanists are very clear that all children belong to the state, are raised for the state, and are handed over to the state for its services. And they also realize the importance of obliterating the relationship that exists between parents and children for this to work. Karl Marx, in his Communist Manifesto, wrote, We destroy the most hallowed of relations when we replace home education with social. Plato's Republic states that, No parent should know his child or child his parent. A woman, I said, at twenty years of age, may begin to bear children for the state. John Jack Rousseau believed that all parents had an obligation to raise their children for the state. A father owes men to humanity, citizens to its state. We see parental authority being taken away as soon as a child is born, and in some cases, while the child is still in the womb. The doctor says your baby has a defect and wants to terminate the pregnancy. You refuse, because you don't want the doctor to kill your baby, the very child you have given life to and prayed for. And suddenly, you are fighting for the life of your child and are being labeled as guilty, selfish parents for choosing keeping the baby alive instead of killing it. When your child is born, you have barely any rights concerning the medical care the baby receives. When the child enters school, you have no say over what is taught in the curriculum, what is seen, what is read, what type of propaganda they are learning. Homosexual marriage, two mommies and two daddies, is being taught as perfectly normal, even among the youngest school children. Parents today have adopted the humanistic propaganda of John Jack Rousseau in raising their children, and we see the implications of this in the culture around us. He wrote, It is not a part of a child's business to know right from wrong. Give your scholar no verbal lessons. Never make him say forgive me, for he does not know how to do you wrong. He deserves neither punishment or reproof. The only natural passion is self-love or selfishness taken in a wider sense. This selfishness is good in itself. Emil by Rousseau We see this in our society as we hear of corporal discipline being banned and called evil. We see that parents are taught to stay out of their children's social lives, to back away from their rebellious teenagers, and to say nothing about what they choose to do with their time. What does God's word say about this issue of parental rights? In Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 through 19, we read, Therefore shall ye lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sittest in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Clearly, the parents have the responsibility to, first and foremost, teach their children the commands of God. The parents cannot be talking to their children about the things of God as they are sitting in the house, as they are walking around, as they are going to bed each night and waking up each morning, if the children are not there to talk to. God doesn't leave us in the dark when it comes to parental rights or children's rights either. In Colossians 3 verse 20, we read of the rights of children. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. We have an obligation to obey our parents unless something clearly goes against the commands of Scripture. We ought to obey God rather than men. Acts 5 verse 29. We are warned in Romans 13 verse 1 to be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. While this verse is speaking of civil law and rule, it is very applicable to the way children view parents. Our parents are our authority, they are our higher power, and they have been chosen and ordained by God, through his providence, to be our parents on this earth. Proverbs 22 verse 6 tells parents to train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We are told how to train them. 
The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Proverbs 29, verse 15. Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. Proverbs 29, verse 17. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth chasteneth him betimes. Proverbs 13, verse 24. We are told that our Heavenly Father sanctions the use of corporal punishment, the rod, when disciplining. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, says Proverbs 22, verse 15, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. We can see the implications of this departure from God's laws in favor of man's laws all around us. Perhaps if parents were involved in their children's lives, there would be fewer unwed pregnancies. There would be less crime. If the children had been trained at home, there would be fewer instances of disrespect of any authority, regardless of ethnicity. If we, as a society, allowed children to feel the consequences of their sin and mistakes, perhaps they would then learn from them. Instead, parents are told by counselors that they aren't needed. They are outdated, old-fashioned, and should just leave the children alone. They have it all handled because, after all, they are the professionals. And as a new generation is beginning to raise up their own families, we see more and more rights being taken away. The generation before this knew it was wrong, fought against it, and was at times coerced into it. This new generation has been raised with this mindset and taught that there is nothing wrong with it, and thus they will abdicate all their parental authority to the state without ever being asked. Luke 17 verse 2 tells us that it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. The NIV translation renders the verse in this manner. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Would not a part of stumbling be setting our children up to fail in society because of the training their parents have been prevented from giving to them? The cry of all parents' hearts should be, as Joshua of old, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, verse 15. This article, titled A Return to Slavery, was written by Jonathan Character, December twentieth, 2016. Slavery is an undeniable fact of human history, and neither is it a completed fact, because it has never been more prevalent than it is today. Thus, it is important to understand the significant role of slavery in history, so we can understand the ever-increasing use of it today to subjugate the peoples of the world. It is important for us to begin with a clear definition of slavery. Slavery is typically defined as property in human beings. However, this is not altogether a comprehensive definition, because no man can truly own another man. It is impossible to have absolute property right in another human being, because there is no way to own his intellect. While he might work for you physically, you have no ownership in his thoughts, emotions, will, and being. For this reason, it is necessary to divine slavery thus. Slavery is property in the labor of another man. A slave owner owns the labor of his slave. There are three major forms of slavery which have existed in history. First, private ownership in its various expressions. Typically, when one thinks of slavery, it is in this first form. However, historically speaking, private ownership has been perhaps the most benign form of slavery. In scripture, slavery as outlined by God is not condemned, but instead upheld as legitimate. Slavery in the Bible was primarily voluntary. God recognized that in society there are individuals to whom security is the most important consideration. For these people, their lives will be ordered in terms of security rather than liberty. For this reason, many people in the Old Testament times sold themselves into slavery because they valued benefits of security over challenges of liberty. God's law spoke with direction as to the treatment of such individuals. First, if the slave fed from his master, 
he was free to go and find another master. Deuteronomy 23, verse 15. Second, kidnapping for purposes of enslavement was strictly forbidden and worthy of capital punishment. Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. Third, human treatment was required. Leviticus 25, verses 43-55. Fourth, the laborer was worthy of his hire, whether slave or free. Slavery, therefore, is a way of life. It is a way of life the scriptures recognize as inferior yet legitimate. Many people throughout history, and especially in our day and age, desire slavery. In America, we are surrounded by slaves, and yet we claim by title the status of free citizens. Furthermore, these slaves are beginning to assert more and more influence on our world. Why? Because we lack biblical realism and a solid understanding of what slavery really is and really should be. Even though the scriptures do recognize slavery as a legitimate way of life, it does not recognize it as a permanent state of life. Every sabbatical year, all slaves were to be freed. If then they insisted upon their preference of security over liberty, they were to have their ears pierced, thereby signifying they were no longer men. Any man with his ear pierced, thereby, professed to the world that he had given up the position of a free man, and had assumed a life of slavery. Even then, however, his slavery was not permanent, because on the year of Jubilee he was free to go if he pleased. The second form of slavery we encounter in history is far more common than the first, and is state ownership of slaves. The state, in this form, has a property right in the labor of its subjects. Egypt, Assyria, Rome, and many of the nations of antiquity practiced such slavery of their own people and those conquered through military conquests. Such ownership in antiquity pales in comparison, however, to the state ownership of slaves in the modern world. In the 20th century, communist Russia and under the Iron Curtain nations were the most vivid representation of such forms of slavery. Under communism, the state has a total property right in the labor of the individual, but this is not all. Under the free world order as well, citizens are being progressively reduced to the position of total slaves of the state. The state continues to increase its claim in the property of the free individual. In our day, there is much discussion concerning America being a free nation and the champion of the free world. This expression, however widely accepted, is deeply flawed. This is because it goes hand in hand with the enslavement of the people. A nation can be free and its citizens slaves. In terms of biblical government, the people are made free by the restrictions God places upon the role of the civil government. State ownership of slaves has never been more prevalent in history than it is today. It is doubtful that the total number of state-owned slaves from the beginnings of human history till the year 1900 would equal the number that suffer bondage today. We live thus in the great age of slavery. The third and final form of slavery is spiritual slavery. In John 8, verses 34 through 36, Christ spoke thus of spiritual slavery. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When we are in spiritual slavery, sin and Satan has a property right in our labor. We are inwardly slaves, and as such, desire a physical condition which will match our inward state. A true slave seeks a master. He desires a secure life. To require cradle-to-grave, womb-to-tomb security. Today, the enslaved people of the United States seek for the civil government to be their slave master and to provide for them the security which characterizes every slave. 
In concluding our analysis of slavery, it is important to recognize and note the respective values of slavery and freedom. The penalty of slavery is the surrender of liberty. However, to a slave, the surrender of liberty is not a penalty. In fact, liberty is what he desires to be saved from. He dreads it above all else, and thus seeks a master who will deliver him from it. Liberty also offers penalties and advantages. The penalty is loss of security and the repercussions thereof. Insecurity, however, is a state of being which the Christian man must embrace. The basic condition of Christianity is faith. And what does walking by faith mean other than trusting in the promise of God that he will bless those who diligently seek and keep his law? To believe in liberty is to believe that God's word is truth incarnate, and those who proceed in terms of the insecurity of liberty are walking in terms of ultimate security, God's governing hand. For the Christian man who has been freed from bondage to sin, liberty is not a penalty, but a condition of life ordained by God and accepted by faith in the confidence that security is in liberty and in God, the author of the law of liberty. James 1, verse 25. Today, we have two options on our hands. The security of slavery, recognized as a legitimate but lesser way of life, or the security of liberty. Basic to all slavery is guilt, and thus for true liberty to be expressed in a society, atonement must be made for the guilt of the man. The scriptures proclaim that this atonement is only found in Christ, and thus, as we move forward, we must proclaim the supremacy of liberty which can only be attained in the individual and in society, by the regenerating work of Christ. This article, titled Dishes and Dominion, was written by Hallie Brush on February 16, 2017. Did I mistitle this article? Of course not. Out of all the things I could write about, why dishes? It may seem that doing dishes isn't a favorite task with most. I've never really given it much thought. Personally, I like doing dishes. I could, and do, do dishes all day, Granted, it would be very nice to get other things done, too, but doing dishes is still something that I enjoy, most of the time. But recently, during a conversation with a good friend, I jokingly said that I'd rather do dishes instead of having to go fishing. And the thing he said in response really struck me and made me think, really think, about it ever since. Ha! Never seen anyone so happy to do dishes. But why? Why don't we get excited about doing dishes? There are a score of reasons for not liking to do dishes. They take longer than anyone has time for. They are a never-ending job. You have to do it multiple times a day, every day, for life. They get in the way of many other, more important things we have to do. There's just not time to do the dishes. And so on. We all must admit that we fall into this trap. But, as children of the king, aren't we to be rejoicing? Aren't we to be cheerful workers? God gave us the ability to work, and he gave us the work to do. Why do we allow it to annoy us? Why do we make it a drudgery? There is so much good to doing dishes. I'm sure we could all write up a nearly endless list of reasons why dishes are a pain to do. But what good would that do us? How many of us could write up a list of equal size about why dishes are enjoyable? To me, doing dishes is a joy. I want my mindset to be, dirty dishes are such a blessing, I want never to be out of dishes to do. Do you know what it means when we have a sink full of dirty dishes? You know what a blessing dirty dishes are? Now, before you all get to thinking that I have completely lost any sanity I might have had left, let me explain how dirty dishes are a blessing. Dirty dishes means that God is making provision for you. Dirty dishes means that God has blessed you with people to serve. Dirty dishes means that you have companions. The more dishes there are, the more people you have around, usually. Dirty dishes means you have time to spend in prayer and thanksgiving. 
Dirty dishes means that you are not idle. Dirty dishes mean that you have the opportunity to practice cheerfulness in serving. Dirty dishes mean that you have the opportunity to practice housekeeping skills. Dirty dishes usually means that you've brought pleasure to someone. Need I go on? Do you get my point? Have you ever thought about just how important dishes are? I know most of us want to be reformers. Have you thought of the importance of dishes in the reformation effort? Why? If someone doesn't do the dishes, then there aren't clean ones to use the next time around, and this eventually results in starving people, and therefore no reformers. I know that sounds a little exaggerated, but it really isn't so much when you think about it. If having clean dishes is that important, and dishes don't do themselves, that would make the person that washes them fairly important too. My point here is this. We have to choose to enjoy our work. Every little task is important in the work we are doing. No job is too small. Each plays a special part in the broader Reformation effort, and who are we to shun any one of them? When I find I'm getting tired of doing dishes, I start thinking about how miserable life would be if I had no family to do dishes for. If you look for it and are able to find the good in something, it makes it far more enjoyable. Then, as children of the King, we can go around rejoicing in Him as His children should. I can get very down seeing others around me going on missions trips, getting married, starting churches, going to college, working a million and one jobs, etc. And what do I do? I stay home and do dishes. But then I remind myself, someone has to do dishes. Someone has to do the small, unimportant jobs, which aren't, in reality, that unimportant. They are just as needed as anything else. Thus, while others serve their Lord going on missions trips, ministering at the workplace, advancing their education, etc., I will serve my Lord at the sink. I will stand at my post and joyfully serve Christ through doing dishes. Through His grace, I am able to say that it is glorious to be chef, cook, and bottle washer, and to do it to the best of my ability and praise Him all the while. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.